Chapter 9 of The Devil, a Petersburg poem by Fyodor Dostoevsky, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 9 Everything, apparently, and even nature itself, seemed up in arms against Mr. Golyadkin, but he was still on his legs and unconquered. He felt that he was unconquered. He was ready to struggle. He rubbed his hands with such feeling and such energy when he recovered from his first amazement that it could be deduced from his very air that he would not give in. Yet the danger was imminent. It was evident. Mr. Goyadkin felt it. But how to grapple with it? With this danger? That was the question. The thought even flashed through Mr. Goyadkin's mind for a moment. After all, why not leave it so? Simply give it up. Why, what is it? Why, it's nothing. I'll keep apart as though it were not I thought Mr. Goyadkin. I'll let it all pass. It's not I, and that's all about it. He's separate, too. Maybe he'll give it up, too. He'll hang about, the rascal. He'll hang about. He'll come back and give it up again. That's how it will be. I'll take it meekly. And indeed, where is the danger? Come, what danger is there? I should like anyone to tell me where the danger lies in this business. It is a trivial affair. An everyday affair. At this point, Mr. Goyadkin's tongue failed. The words died away on his lips. He even swore at himself for this thought. He convicted himself on the spot of abjectness, of cowardice, for having this thought. Things were no forwarder, however. He felt that to make up his mind to some course of action was absolutely necessary for him at the moment. He even felt that he would have given a great deal to anyone who could have told him what he must decide to do. Yes, but how could he guess what? though indeed he had no time to guess in any case that he might lose no time he took a cab and dashed home well what are you feeling now he wondered what are you graciously pleased to be thinking of yakov petrovitch what are you doing what are you doing now you rogue you rascal you've brought yourself to this plight and now you are weeping and whimpering so mr goyadkin taunted himself as he jolted along in the vehicle to taunt himself and so to irritate his wounds was at this time a great satisfaction to mr goyadkin almost a voluptuous enjoyment well he thought if some magician were to turn up now or if it could come to pass in some official way and i were told give a finger of your right hand goyadkin and it's a bargain with you there shall not be the other goyadkin and you will be happy only you won't have your finger yes i would sacrifice my finger I would certainly sacrifice it. I would sacrifice it without winking. The devil take it all, the despairing titular counsellor cried at last. Why, what is it all for? Well, it all had to be. Yes, it absolutely had to. Yes, just this had to be, as though nothing else were possible. And it was all right at first. Everyone was pleased and happy. But there, it had to be. There's nothing to be gained by talking, though. You must act. And so, almost resolved upon some action, Mr. Goliadkin reached home, and without a moment's delay snatched up his pipe and, sucking at it with all his might and puffing out clouds of smoke to right and to left, he began pacing up and down the room in a state of violent excitement. Meanwhile, Petrushka began laying the table. At last, Mr. Goliadkin made up his mind completely, flung aside his pipe and put on his overcoat, said he would not dine at home, and ran out of the flat. Petrushka, panting, overtook him on the stairs, bringing the hat he had forgotten. Mr. Goliadkin took his hat, wanted to say something incidentally to justify himself in Petrushka's eyes, that the latter might not think anything particular, 
such as what a queer circumstance, here he forgot his hat, and so on. But as Petrushka walked away at once and would not even look at him, Mr. Goyadkin put on his hat without further explanation, ran downstairs and repeating to himself that perhaps everything might be for the best, and that affairs would somehow be arranged. Though he was conscious, among other things, of a cold chill right down to his heels, he went out on the street, took a cab, and hastened to Andrei Filopovich's. Would it not be better tomorrow, though, thought Mr. Goyadkin, as he took hold of the bell rope of Andrei Filopovich's flat? And besides, what can I say in particular? There's nothing particular in it. It's such a wretched affair. Yes, it really is wretched. Paltry, yes, that is, almost a paltry affair. Yes, that's what it all is, the incident. Suddenly, Mr. Goyadkin pulled at the bell. The bell rang. Footsteps were heard within. Mr. Goliadkin cursed himself on the spot for his hastiness and audacity. His recent unpleasant experiences, which he had almost forgotten over his work, and his encounter with Andrei Filopovich immediately came back to his mind. But by now it was too late to run away. The door opened. Luckily for Mr. Goliadkin, he was informed that Andrei Filopovich had not returned from the office and had not dined at home. I know where he dines. He dines near the Ismailovsky Bridge, thought our hero, and he was immensely relieved. To the footman's inquiry what message he would leave, he said, It's all right, my good man, I'll look in later, and he even ran downstairs with a certain cheerful briskness. Going out into the street, he decided to dismiss the cab and paid the driver. When the man asked for something extra, saying he had been waiting in the street and had not spared his horse for his honor, he gave him five kopecks extra, even willingly, and then walked on. It really is such a thing, thought Mr. Goyadkin, that it cannot be left like that. Though if one looks at it that way, looks at it sensibly, why am I hurrying about here in reality? Well, yes, though, I will go on discussing why I should take a lot of trouble. Why I should rush about, exert myself, worry myself, and wear myself out. To begin with, the thing's done and there's no recalling it. Of course, there's no recalling it. Let's put it like this. A man turns up with a satisfactory reference, said to be a capable clerk of good conduct. Only he is a poor man and has suffered many reverses, all sorts of ups and downs. Well, poverty is not a crime, so I must stand aside. Why, what nonsense it is! Well, he came, he is so made, the man is so made by nature itself that he is as like another man, as though it, they were two drops of water, as though he were a perfect copy of another man. How could they refuse to take him into the department on that account? If it is fate, if it is only fate, if it is only blind chance that is to blame, is he to be treated like a rag? Is he to be refused a job in the office? Why, what would become of justice after that? He is a poor man, hopeless, downcast. It makes one's heart ache. Compassion bids one care for him. Yes, there's no denying. There would be a fine set of head officials if they took the same view as a reprobate like me. What an pain I am. I have foolishness enough for a dozen. Yes, yes, they did right, and many thanks to them for being good to a poor, luckless fellow. Why, let us imagine for a moment that we are twins, that we had been born twin brothers and nothing else. There it is. Well, what of it? Why, nothing. All the clerks can get used to it, and an outsider coming into our office would certainly find nothing unseemly or offensive in the circumstance. In fact, there is really something touching in it, to think that the divine providence created two men exactly alike, 
and the heads of the department seeing the divine handiwork provided for two twins. It would, of course, Mr. Goyadkin went on drawing a breath and dropping his voice, it would, of course, it would, of course, have been better if there had been, if there had been nothing of this touching kindness, and if there had been no twins either. The devil take it all, and what need was there for it, and what was the particular necessity that admitted of no delay? My goodness, the devil has made a mess of it. Besides, he has such a character, too. He's of such a playful, horrid disposition. He's such a scoundrel. He's such a nimble fellow. He's such a toady, such a lickspittle. He's such a goyadkin. I dare say he will misconduct himself. Yes, he'll disgrace my name, the blackguard. And now I have to look after him and wait upon him. What an infliction! But after all, what of it? It doesn't matter. Granted, he's a scoundrel. Well, let him be a scoundrel. But to make up for it, the other one's honest. So he will be a scoundrel, and I'll be honest, and they'll say that this Goliadkin's a rascal. Don't take any notice of him, and don't mix him up with the other. But the other one's honest, virtuous, mild, free from malice, always to be relied upon in the service, and worthy of promotion. That's how it is. Very good. But what if, what if they get us mixed up? He's equal to anything. Ah, Lord, have mercy upon us. He will counterfeit a man. He will counterfeit him, the rascal. He will change one man for another as though he were a rag, and not reflect that a man is not a rag. Ah, mercy upon us. What a calamity. Reflecting and lamenting in this way, Mr. Goyadkin ran on, regardless of where he was going. He came to his senses in the Nevsky Prospect, only owing to the chance that he ran so nearly full tilt into a passerby that he saw stars in his eyes. Mr. Goliadkin muttered his excuses without raising his head, and it was only after the passerby muttering something far from flattering had walked a considerable distance away that he raised his nose and looked about to see where he was and how he had got there, noticing when he did so that he was close to the restaurant in which he had sat for a while before the dinner party at Olsufi Ivanovich's, our hero was suddenly conscious of a pinching and nipping sensation in his stomach. He remembered that he had not dined. He had no prospect of a dinner party anywhere. And so, without losing precious time, he ran upstairs into the restaurant to have a smack of something as quick as possible and to avoid delay by making all the haste he could. And, though everything in the restaurant was rather dear, that little circumstance did not on this occasion make Mr. Goliadkin pause. And, indeed, he had no time to pause over such a trifle. In the brightly lighted room, the customers were standing in rather a crowd round the counter, upon which lay heaps of all sorts of such edibles as are eaten by well-bred persons at lunch. The waiter scarcely had time to fill glasses to serve, to take money, and give change. Mr. Goliadkin waited for his turn and modestly stretched out his hand for a savory patty, retreating into a corner, turning his back on the company, and eating with appetite. He went back to the attendant, put down his plate, and, knowing the price, took out a ten-kopeck piece and laid the coin on the counter, catching the waiter's eye as though to say, look, here's the money, one pie, and so on. One ruble ten kopecks is your bill, the waiter filtered through his teeth. Mr. Goliadkin was a good deal surprised. You are speaking to me? I, I took one pie, I believe. You've had eleven, the man retorted confidently. You, so it seems to me, I believe you're mistaken. I really took only one pie, I think. 
I counted them. You took eleven. Since you've had them, you must pay for them. We don't give anything away for nothing. Mr. Goliadkin was petrified. What sorcery is this? What is happening to me? He wondered. Meanwhile, the man waited for Mr. Goliadkin to make up his mind. People crowded round Mr. Goliadkin. He was already feeling in his pocket for a silver rouble, to pay the full amount at once, to avoid further trouble. Well, if it was eleven, it was eleven, he thought, turning as red as a lobster. Why, what does it matter if eleven pies have been eaten? Why, a man's hungry, so he eats eleven pies. Well, let him eat, and may it do him good, and there's nothing to wonder at in that, and there's nothing to laugh at. At that moment, somebody seemed to stab Mr. Goliadkin. He raised his eyes, and at once he guessed the riddle. He knew what the sorcery was. All his difficulties were solved. In the doorway of the next room, almost directly behind the waiter and facing Mr. Goliadkin, in the doorway which, till that moment, our hero had taken for a looking-glass, a man was standing. He was standing, Mr. Goliadkin was standing. Not the original Mr. Goliadkin, the hero of our story, but the other Mr. Goliadkin, the new Mr. Goliadkin. The second Mr. Goliadkin was apparently in excellent spirits. He smiled to Mr. Goliadkin the first nodded to him, winked, shuffled his feet a little, and looked as though in another minute he would vanish, would disappear into the next room, and then go out, maybe, by a back way out. And there it would be, and all pursuit would be in vain. In his hand he had the very last morsel of the tenth pie, and before Mr. Gloyadkin's eyes he popped it into his mouth and smacked his lips. He has impersonated me, the scoundrel, thought Mr. Gloyadkin, flushing hot with shame. He is not ashamed of the publicity of it. Do they see him? I fancy no one notices him. Mr. Goliadkin threw down his rouble as though it burnt his fingers, and without noticing the waiter's insolently significant grin, a smile of triumph and serene power, he extricated himself from the crowd and rushed away without looking round. We must be thankful that at least he has not completely compromised anyone, thought Mr. Goliadkin Sr. We must be thankful to him, the brigand, and to fate, that everything was satisfactorily settled. The waiter was rude, that was all, but after all, he was in the right. One rouble and ten kopecks were owing, so he was in the right. We don't give things away for nothing, he said, though he might have been more polite, the rascal. All this Mr. Goliadkin said to himself as he went downstairs to the entrance, but on the last step he stopped suddenly, as though he had been shot and suddenly flushed till the tears came into his eyes at the insult to his dignity. After standing stock-still for half a minute, he stamped his foot resolutely, at one bound, leapt from the step into the street, and, without looking round, rushed breathless and unconscious of fatigue back home to his flat in Chesteel of Ockney Street. When he got home without changing his coat, though it was his habit to change into an old coat at home, Without even stopping to take his pipe, he sat down on the sofa, drew the inkstand toward him, took up a pen, got a sheet of notepaper, and with a hand that trembled from inward excitement began scribbling the following epistle. Dear Sir Yakov Petrovitch, I should not take up my pen if circumstances and your own actions, sir, had not compelled me to that step. Believe me that nothing but necessity would have induced me to enter upon such a discussion with you, and therefore, first of all, I beg you, sir, to look upon this step of mine not as a premeditated design to insult you, but as the inevitable consequence of the circumstance that is a bond between us now. I think it's all right, proper, courteous, 
though not lacking in force and firmness i don't think there's anything for him to take offence at besides i'm fully within my rights thought mr golyadkin reading over what he had written your strange and sudden appearance sir on a stormy night after the coarse and unseemly behaviour of my enemies to me for whom i feel too much contempt even to mention their names was the starting point of all the misunderstanding existing between us at the present time your obstinate desire to persist in your course of action sir and forcibly to enter the circle of my existence and all my relations in practical life transgresses every limit imposed by the merest politeness and every rule of civilized society i imagine there is no need sir for me to refer to the seizure by you of my papers and particularly to your taking away my good name in order to gain the favour of my superiors favour you have not deserved there is no need to refer here either to your intentional and insulting refusal of the necessary explanation in regard to us finally to omit nothing i will not allude here to your last strange one may even say your incomprehensible behaviour to me in the coffee-house i am far from lamenting over the needless for me loss of a rouble but i cannot help expressing my indignation at the recollection of your public outrage upon me to the detriment of my honour and what is more in the presence of several persons of good breeding though not belonging to my circle of acquaintance am i not going too far thought mr golyadkin isn't it too much won't it be too insulting that taunt about good breeding for instance but there it doesn't matter i must show him the resoluteness of my character i might however to soften him flatter him and butter him up at the end but there we shall see but i should not weary you with my letter sir if i were not firmly convinced that the nobility of your sentiments and your open candid character would suggest to you yourself a means for retrieving all lapses and returning everything to its original position with full confidence i venture to rest assured that you will not take my letter in a sense derogatory to yourself and at the same time that you will not refuse to explain yourself expressly on this occasion by letter sending the same by my man in expectation of your reply i have the honour dear sir to remain your humble servant y Gulyadkin. well that is quite all right the thing's done it has come to letter writing but who is to blame for that he is to blame himself by his own action he reduces a man to the necessity of resorting to epistolary composition and i am within my rights reading over his letter for the last time mr golyadkin folded it up sealed it and called petrushka petrushka came in looking as usual sleepy and cross about something you will take this letter my boy do you understand petrushka did not speak you will take it to the department there you must find the secretary on duty varamyev he is the one on duty to-day do you understand that i understand i understand he can't even say i understand sir you must ask for the secretary varamyev and tell him that your master desired you to send his regards and humbly requests him to refer to the address book of our office and find out where the titular councillor golyadkin is living petrushka remained mute and as mr golyadkin fancied smiled well so you see pyotr you have to ask him for the address and find out where the new clerk golyadkin lives yes 
You must ask for the address and then take this letter there. Do you understand? I understand. If there were you have to take the letter, that gentleman to whom you have to give the letter, that Golyadkin, what are you laughing at, you blockhead? What is there to laugh at? What is it to me? I wasn't doing anything, sir. It's not for the likes of us to laugh. Oh, well, if that gentleman should ask, how is your master? How is he? If he, well, if he should say to you anything, you hold your tongue and answer, my master is all right, and begs you for an answer to his letter. Do you understand? Yes, sir. Well, then, say, my master is all right and quite well. Say, and is just getting ready to pay a call, and he asks you, say, for an answer in writing. Do you understand? Yes. Well, go along, then. Why, what a bother I have with this blockhead, too. He's laughing and there's nothing to be done. What's he laughing at? I've lived to see trouble. Here I've lived like this to see trouble, though perhaps it may all turn out for the best. That rascal will be loitering about for the next two hours now, I expect. He'll go off somewhere else. There's no sending him anywhere. What a misery it is. What misery has come upon me. Feeling his troubles to the full, our hero made up his mind to remain passive for two hours till Petrushka returned. For an hour of time he walked about the room, smoked, then put aside his pipe and sat down to a book. Then he lay down on the sofa, then took up his pipe again, then again began running about the room. He tried to think things over, but was absolutely unable to think about anything. At last the agony of remaining passive reached the climax, and Mr. Golyadkin made up his mind to take a step. Petrushka will come in another hour, he thought. I can give the key to the porter, and I myself can, so to speak, I can investigate the matter. I shall investigate the matter in my own way. Without loss of time, in haste to investigate the matter, Mr. Golyadkin took his hat, went out of the room, locked up his flat, went into the porter, gave him the key, together with ten kopecks. Mr. Golyadkin had become extraordinarily free-handed of late, and rushed off. Mr. Goyadkin went first on foot to the Ismailovsky Bridge. It took him half an hour to get there. When he reached the goal of his journey, he went straight into the yard of the house so familiar to him and glanced up at the windows of the civil councillor Berendiev's flat. Except for three windows hung with red curtains, all the rest was dark. Osufi Ivanovitch has no visitors today, thought Mr. Goyadkin. They must be all staying at home today. After standing for some time in the yard, our hero tried to decide on some course of action. But he was apparently not destined to reach a decision. Mr. Golyadkin changed his mind and with a wave of his hand went back into the street. No, there's no need for me to go today. What could I do here? No. I better, so to speak, I'll investigate the matter personally. Coming to this conclusion, Mr. Golyadkin rushed off to his office. He had a long way to go. It was horribly muddy besides, and the wet snow lay about in thick drifts, but it seemed as though difficulty did not exist for our hero at the moment. He was drenched through, it is true, and he was a good deal splattered with mud. But that's no matter so long as the object is obtained, and Mr. Golyadkin certainly was nearing his goal. The dark mass of the huge government building stood up black before his eyes. Stay, he thought. Where am I going, and what am I going to do here? Suppose I do find out where he lives. Meanwhile, Petrushka will certainly have come back and brought me the answer. I am only wasting my precious time. I am simply wasting my time. 
though shouldn't I, perhaps, go in and see Varamyev? But no, I'll go later. Ech, there was no need to have gone out at all. But there, it's my temperament. I've a knack of always seizing a chance of rushing ahead of things, whether there is a need to or not. Hm. <laughs> what time is it? It must be nine by now. Petrushka might come and not find me at home. It was pure folly on my part to go out. Ech, it's a real nuisance. Sincerely acknowledging that he had been guilty of an act of folly, our hero ran back to Shestilvokny Street. He arrived there weary and exhausted. From the porter, he learned that Petrushka had not dreamed of turning up yet. To be sure, I foresaw it would be so, thought our hero, and meanwhile it's nine o'clock. Ech, he's such a good-for-nothing. He's always drinking somewhere. Mercy on us, what a day has fallen to my miserable lot. Reflecting in this way, Mr. Goyadkin unlocked his flat, got a light, took off his outdoor things, lighted the pipe, and, tired, worn out, exhausted, and hungry, lay down on the sofa and waited for Vitrushka. The candle burnt dimly, the light flickered on the wall. Mr. Goyadkin gazed and gazed and thought and thought and fell asleep at last, worn out. It was late when he woke up. The candle had almost burnt down, was smoking and on the point of going out. Mr. Golyadkin jumped up, shook himself, and remembered it all, absolutely all. Behind the screen, he heard Petrushka snoring lustily. Mr. Golyadkin rushed to the window, not a light anywhere. He opened the movable pane. All was still. The city was asleep, as though it were dead. So it must have been two or three o'clock. And so it proved to be, indeed. The clock behind the partition made an effort and struck two. Mr. Golyadkin rushed behind the partition. He succeeded somehow, though only after great exertions, in rousing Petrushka and making him sit up in his bed. At that moment, the candle went out completely. About ten minutes passed before Mr. Golyadkin succeeded in finding another candle and lighting it. In the interval, Petrushka had fallen asleep again. "'You scoundrel! You worthless fellow!' said Mr. Golyadkin, shaking him up again. "'Will you get up? Will you wake?' After half of an hour of effort, Mr. Goyadkin succeeded, however, in rousing his servant thoroughly and dragging him out from behind the partition. Only then our hero remarked the fact that Petrushka was what is called dead drunk and could hardly stand on his legs. "'You good-for-nothing fellow!' cried Mr. Goyadkin. "'You ruffian! You'll be the death of me! Good heavens, whatever has he done with the letter? Ugh, my God, where is it? And why did I write it?' as though there were any need for me to have written it. I went scribbling away out of pride, like a noodle. I've got myself into this fix out of pride. That is what dignity does for you, you rascal. That is dignity. Come, what have you done with the letter, you ruffian? To whom did you give it? I didn't give anyone any letter, and I never had any letter. So there. Mr. Golyadkin wrung his hands in despair. Listen, Pewtor, listen to me, listen to me. I'm listening. Where have you been? Answer. Where have I been? I've been to see good people. What is it to me? Oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Where did you go to begin with? Did you go to the department? Listen, Pitor, perhaps you're drunk. Me drunk? If I should be struck on the spot this minute, not a drop, not a drop. So there. No, no, it's, it's no matter your being drunk. I only asked, it's all right you're being drunk. I don't mind, Petrushka, I don't mind. Perhaps it's only that you have forgotten. But you'll remember it all. Come, try to remember. Have you been to that clerk's, to Veremyev's? 
have you been to him or not i have not been and there's no such clerk not if i were this minute no no pietor no petrushka you know i don't mind why you see i don't mind come what happened to be sure it's cold and damp in the street and so a man has a drop and it's no matter i am not angry i've been drinking myself to-day my boy come think and try remember did you go to varemyev well then now this is how it was it's the truth i did go if this very minute come that is right petrushka that is quite right that you've been you see i'm not angry come come our hero went on coaxing his servant more and more patting him on the shoulder and smiling to him come you had a little nip you scoundrel you had a two pennyworth of something i suppose you're a sly rogue well that's no matter come you see that i'm not angry i'm not angry my boy i'm not angry no i'm not a sly rogue say what you like i only went to see some good friends i'm not a rogue and i never have been a rogue oh no no petrushka listen petrushka you know i'm not scolding you when i call you a rogue i said that in fun i said it in a good sense you see petrushka it is sometimes a compliment to a man when you call him a rogue a cunning fellow that he's a sharp chap and would not let any one take him in some men like it come come it doesn't matter come tell me petrushka without keeping anything back openly as to a friend did you go to varamyev's and did he give you the address he did give me the address he did give me the address too he's a nice gentleman your master says he is a nice man he says very nice man says he i send my regards says he to your master thank him and say that i like him says he how i do respect your master he says he because says he your master petrushka he says he is a good man and you says he petrushka are a good man too ah mercy upon us but the address the address you judas the last word mr golyadkin uttered almost in a whisper and the address he did give the address too he did well where does golyadkin the clerk golyadkin the titular councillor live why says he golyadkin will now be at sestilovokny street when you get into sestilovokny street take the stairs on the right and it's the fourth floor and there says he you'll find golyadkin you scoundrel our hero cried out of patience at last you're a ruffian why that's my address why you are talking about me but there's another golyadkin i'm talking of the other one you scoundrel well that's as you please what is it to me have it your own way and the letter the letter what letter there wasn't any letter and i didn't see any letter but what have you done with it you rascal i delivered the letter i delivered it he sent his regards thank you says he your master's a nice man says he give my regards says he to your master but who said that was it golyadkin said it petrushka said nothing for a moment and then with a broad grin he stared straight into his master's face listen you scoundrel began mr golyadkin breathless beside himself with fury listen you rascal what have you done to me tell me what you've done to me you've destroyed me you villain you've cut the head off my shoulders you judas well have it your own way i don't care said petrushka in a resolute voice retreating behind the screen come here come here you ruffian i'm not coming to you now i'm not coming at all what do i care i'm going to good folks good folks live honestly good folks live without falsity and they never have doubles mr golyadkin's hands and feet went icy cold 
His breath failed him. Yes, Petrushka went on. They never have doubles. God doesn't afflict honest folk. You worthless fellow, you are drunk. Go to sleep now, you ruffian, and tomorrow you'll catch it, Mr. Goyatkin added in a voice hardly audible. As for Petrushka, he muttered something more. Then he could be heard getting into bed, making the bed creak. After a prolonged yawn, he stretched, and at last began snoring and slept the sleep of the just, as they say. Mr. Golyadkin was more dead than alive. Petrushka's behavior, his very strange hints, which were yet so remote that it was useless to be angry at them, especially as they were uttered by a drunken man, and, in short, the sinister turn taken by the affair altogether. All this shook Mr. Golyadkin to the depths of his being. "'And what possessed me to go for him in the middle of the night?' said our hero, trembling all over from a sickly sensation. "'What the devil made me have anything to do with a drunken man? What could I expect from a drunken man? Whatever he says is a lie. But what was he hinting at, the ruffian? Lord, have mercy on us. And why did I write all that letter? I'm my own enemy. I'm my own murderer.' as if i couldn't hold my tongue i had to go scribbling nonsense and what now you are going to ruin you are like an old rag and yet you worry about your pride you say my honour is wounded and you must stick up for your honour my own murderer that is what i am thus spoke mr golyadkin and hardly dared to stir for terror at last his eyes fastened upon an object which excited his interest to the utmost in terror lest the object that caught his attention should prove to be an illusion, a deception of his fantasy, he stretched out his hand to it with hope, with dread, with indescribable curiosity. No, it was not a deception. No, not a delusion. It was a letter, really a letter, undoubtedly a letter, and addressed to him. Mr. Goyadkin took the letter from the table. His heart beat terribly. No doubt that scoundrel brought it, he thought, put it there, and then forgot it. No doubt that is how it happened. No doubt that is just how it happened. The letter was from Varemyev, a young fellow clerk who had once been his friend. I had a presentiment of this, though, thought our hero, and I had a presentiment of all that there would be in the letter. The letter was as follows. Dear Sir Yakov Petrovitch, your servant is drunk, and there is no getting any sense out of him. For that reason, I prefer to reply by letter. I hasten to inform you that the commission you've entrusted to me, that is, to deliver a letter to a certain person you know, I will agree to carry out, carefully and exactly, that person who is very well known to you, and who has taken the place of a friend to me, whose name I will refrain from mentioning, because I do not wish unnecessarily to blacken the reputation of a perfectly innocent man, lodges with us at Carolina Ivanova's, in the room in which, when you were among us, the infantry officer from Tambov used to be. That person, however, is always to be found in the company of honest and true-hearted persons, which is more than one can say for some people. I intend from this day to break off all connection with you. It's impossible for us to remain on friendly terms and keep up the appearance of comradeship congruous with them. And therefore I beg you, my dear sir, immediately upon the receipt of this candid letter from me to send me the two roubles you owe me for the razor of foreign make which I sold you seven months ago, 
if you will kindly remember, when you were still living with us in the lodgings of Carolina Ivanova, a lady whom I respect from the bottom of my heart. I am acting in this way because you, from the accounts I hear from sensible persons, have lost your dignity and reputation and have become a source of danger to the morals of the innocent and uncontaminated. For some persons are not straightforward. Their words are full of falsity, and their show of good intentions is suspicious. People can always be found capable of insulting Carolina Ivanova, who is always irreproachable in her conduct, and an honest woman, and, what's more, a maiden lady, though no longer young, though, on the other hand, of good foreign family. And the fact I've been asked to mention in this letter by several persons and i speak also for myself in any case you will learn all in due time if you haven't learnt it yet though you've made yourself notorious from an end of the town to the other according to the accounts i hear from sensible people and consequently might well have received intelligence relating to you my dear sir in many places in conclusion i beg to inform you my dear sir that a certain person you know whose name i will not mention here for certain honourable reasons is highly respected by right-thinking people and is moreover of lively and agreeable disposition and is equally successful in the service and in the society of persons of common sense is true in word and in friendship and does not insult behind their back those with whom he is on friendly terms to their face in any case, I remain your obedient servant, N. Varemyev. P.S. You had better dismiss your man. He is a drunkard and probably gives you a great deal of trouble. You had better engage Yevstafi, who used to be in service here and is now out of a place. Your servant presently is not only a drunkard, but, what's more, he's a thief, for only last week he sold a pound of lump sugar to Carolina or Ivanova at less than a cost price which in my opinion he could not have done otherwise than by robbing you in a very sly way little by little at different times i write this to you for your own good although some people can do nothing but insult and deceive everybody especially persons of honesty and good nature what is more they slander them behind their back and misrepresent them simply from envy and because they can't call themselves the same v after reading Varemyev's letter, our hero remained for a long time sitting motionless on his sofa. A new light seemed breaking through the obscure and baffling fog which had surrounded him for the last two days. Our hero seemed to reach a partial understanding. He tried to get up from the sofa to take a turn about the room, to rouse himself, to collect his scattered ideas, and to fix them upon a certain subject, and then set himself to write a little to think over his position thoroughly but as soon as he tried to stand up he fell back again at once weak and helpless yes of course i had a presentiment of all that how he writes so and what is the real meaning of his words supposing i do understand the meaning but what is it leading to he should have said straight out this and that is wanted and i would have done it things have taken such a turn things have come to an unpleasant pass Oh, if only tomorrow would make haste and come, and I could make haste and get to work. I know now what to do. I shall say this and that. I shall agree with his arguments. I won't sell my honor, but... Maybe, but he, that person we know of, that disagreeable person, how does he come to be mixed up in it? And why has he turned up here? 
Oh, if tomorrow would make haste and come, they'll slander me before then. They are intriguing, they are working to spite me. The great thing is not to lose time, and now, for instance, to write a letter, and to say this and that, and that I agree to this and that. And as soon as it is daylight tomorrow, send it off, before he can do anything, and so checkmate them, get in before them, the darlings. They will ruin me by their slanders, and that's the fact of the matter. Mr. Golyadkin drew the paper toward him, took up a pen, and wrote the following missive in answer to the secretary's letter. Dear Sir Nestor Ignatievich, with amazement mingled with heartfelt distress, I have perused your insulting letter to me, for I see clearly that you are referring to me when you speak of certain discreditable persons and false friends. I see with genuine sorrow how rapidly the calumny has spread and how deeply it has taken root to the detriment of my prosperity my honour and my good name and this is the more distressing and mortifying that even honest people of a genuinely noble way of thinking and what is even more important of straightforward and open dispositions abandon the interests of honourable men and with all the qualities of their hearts attach themselves to the pernicious corruption which in our difficult and immoral age has unhappily increased and multiplied so greatly and so disloyally in conclusion i will say that the debt of two roubles of which you remind me i regard as a sacred duty to return to you in its entirety as for your hints concerning a certain person of the female sex concerning the intentions calculations and various designs of that person i can only tell you sir that i have but a very dim and obscure understanding of those insinuations permit me sir to preserve my honourable way of thinking and my good name undefiled in any case i am ready to stoop to an explanation in person preferring a personal interview to a written explanation as more secure and I am, moreover, ready to enter into conciliatory proposals on mutual terms, of course. To that end, I beg you, my dear sir, to convey to that person my readiness for a personal arrangement, and, what is more, to beg her to fix the time and place of the interview. It grieved me, sir, to read your hints of my having insulted you, having been treacherous to our original friendship, and having spoken ill of you. I ascribe this misunderstanding to the abominable calumny, envy, and ill-will of those whom I may justly stigmatize as my bitterest foes. But I suppose that they do not know that innocence is strong, through its very innocence, that the shamelessness, the insolence, and the revolting familiarity of some persons sooner or later gains the stigma of universal contempt, and that such persons come to ruin through nothing but their own worthlessness and the corruption of their own hearts in conclusion i beg you sir to convey to those persons that their strange pretensions and their dishonourable and fanatic desire to squeeze others out of the position which those others occupy by their very existence in this world and to take their place are deserving of contempt amazement compassion and what is more the madhouse moreover such efforts are severely prohibited by law which in my opinion is perfectly just for every one ought to be satisfied with his own position every one has his fixed position and if this is a joke it is a joke in very bad taste i will say more it is utterly immoral for i make bold to assure you sir my own views which i have expounded above in regard to keeping one's own place are purely moral in any case, I have the honor to remain your humble servant, Y. Golyatkin.
End of chapter 9.